Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'll be speaking with Sally G. McMillan, the Mary Reynolds Backcock Professor of History at Davidson College. Her book, Lucy Stone, An Unapologetic Life, published by Oxford University Press, is the topic of this show. Macmillan has given us a rich biography of the life and times of the abolitionist and women's rights advocate Lucy Stone. Born in 1818 into a farming community in Massachusetts, Stone was a precocious and determined girl who set her sights not on marriage, but on education and self-development, earning a degree from Oberlin College. Against her parents' wishes for their daughter, she chose to pursue a career as a public speaker on behalf of abolition and women's rights. Rising from relative obscurity, she became known as a passionate and persuasive speaker, crisscrossing the country and speaking to thousands. Her gender, her confident demeanor, and unpopular views brought both admiring and hostile audiences. Along the way, she forged political alliances and personal friendships with the leading abolitionist and women's rights advocates of her day, including Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, William Lloyd Garrison, Lucretia Mott, and Wendell Phillips. Her many associations, including significant contributions to the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, American Equal Rights Association, and Women's Suffrage Association, and founding the Women's Journal, frame her 50-year career. Macmillan has also provided a private portrait of a principal Lucy Stone, battling bouts of self-doubt, exhaustive travel, and difficult financial and political challenges within and without the suffrage movement. As the mother of Alice Stone Blackwell and the wife of Henry Brown Blackwell, her partner in arms, she undertook a domestic life that stood against the marital customs of her day, avoiding self-promotion, and refusing to participate in building her historical legacy, she was left out of the National Memorial Sculpture for Women's Rights at the U.S. Capitol, diminishing her place among Mott, Stanton, and Anthony. In Lucy Stone, Macmillan recovers not only a committed advocate, but also one who, against societal norms, lived out her ideals of an independent, full, and self-directed life for women. Here's my conversation with Sally G. Macmillan. Now, let me introduce you to the author, Sally G. McMillan. Hello, Sally. Hello. Great to talk to you. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Uh, you have written a rich portrait of Lucy Stone. You have her jumping off the pages, and it was a real joy to read. But before we get into the book, I need to ask you, how did you tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Lucy Stone, An Unapologetic Life? Well, I'm a historian of American women, primarily 19th century American women, and initially most of my research focused on Southern women since I moved from California to the South in 1978 and had no idea where I was or what this strange area was about. And so I decided to go back to school and study um, 
women and get a PhD eventually. And so much of most of my research for the first many years of my uh, academic life was on Southern women on the South. But I wrote a book on the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848 that came out in 2008. <clears throat> um, it was part of the series Pivotal Moments in American History by Oxford University Press. And I featured four women in that book. I had four heroines, uh, Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Lucy Stone. And when I finished that book, my editor said, you seem to really like writing about people. And have you ever thought about writing a biography? And I said, well, I love to read biographies. And I think someone who's not gotten enough attention is Lucy Stone. So he said, go for it. So I started in. And um, fortunately, I already had a fair amount of background on the topic since I had talked about, uh, written about Seneca Falls. And so it was a matter of reading her family letters, um, reading letters to and from her, um, getting more sense of who she was. I visited Oberlin College. I went to West Brookfield, where she was born and raised. I went to Boston, you know, went to a lot of the sites where she had spent much of her life and just really tried to get um, involved in who she was and what she was about. And um, so that's what happened. Now, you start your book, before we get into the uh, the main, you have, an, you have some arguments in your book about Lucy and her place in history. Uh, but before we start, uh, you talk about, you point out that Lucy Stone was left out of the Capitol Memorial sculptor, sculpture with Lucretia Maud, Elizabeth K. Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony. And why did you start it that way? You started off saying, she's not there. Well, that's the main point. I mean, I, in a way, I wanted to get that across. Because in the mid-19th century, she was one of the most famous women in America. I mean, it was like everybody had heard of Lucy Stone. She was an ardent abolitionist. She was so involved in the women's rights movement and played a major leadership role in it. And yet, when you when I was talking about my book on Seneca Falls, most people were like, well, who's Lucy Stone? And so I just thought that would be kind of a jarring way to start the book, kind of a dramatic way to, um, you know, show how we have many figures in our history whom we admire and they are a part of our history and we see them and we see statues of them. And yet this very, very famous woman at the time uh, was not on this on this statue that is in the rotunda of our nation's capital. Now, in your book, as you go on to the book, you do talk about why, one of some of the reasons. And part of it was Lucy Stone herself, why yes. she ends up not being known. Right. I mean, it's impossible to just blame it on someone else. Um, and I mean, if you want me, yeah, she, first of all, she was extremely humble. Um, she was humble throughout her life. People wanted to write about her. Journalists came and wanted to do do pieces on her and essays on her, and she always refused. And even her daughter Alice admitted that her mother was extremely, um, you know, just just such a humble person. She always felt and wrote this that she felt the movement itself was far more important than the actual individuals. So that's one reason. Certainly, very much a part of her personality. Um, the other major reason is more complicated, and that was that in 1869, there was a split in the women's movement. Before the Civil War, women had worked together to really try to get um, more rights for women, and particularly women's suffrage. In 1869, the movement split, and one of the major reasons was over the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments giving black men citizenship and the right to vote. 
And Lucy Stone supported both amendments. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton did not. There were other reasons uh, that were a little more personal. But in 1869, Stanton and Anthony formed the National Women's Suffrage Association. They did this very quickly. They did not invite Lucy to join. Um, and several months later, she decided that she couldn't work with these two women. She, um, she needed her own organization, and she founded the American Women's Suffrage Association. And so from 1869 until 1890, you had two, um, two um, different organizations really going after and trying to get women's suffrage passed. And so they were both seeking the same goal. But there was a fair amount of acrimony and particularly some, some really unpleasantness between, um, particularly between Stone and Anthony. Um, in the 1880s, Anthony and Stanton decided they wanted to write a history of the women's movement. And it was a major editorial um, production. Um, and what they did basically was to tell the history from the perspective of their own organization, inviting all the women who were on their side, in a sense, to participate. They did ask Lucy, but she refused. I mean, I think by this point, there was um, sort of such hard feelings between the two organizations. She refused, and again, she felt it was way too early to write about a movement that was still in process. There was, you know, women's suffrage was a long way off, and she felt you couldn't historically really write an accurate account until, you know, the goal had been achieved. So she was left out of, um, particularly out of Volume 2, which covered the period um, of 1869 and on. And um, so this, this, um, these three, the first three volumes of the history of women's suffrage basically pretty much ignored Lucy Stone. And so, it's been used by historians as a major, um, a major a primary source for writing about women's history. So th this is really interesting in, in terms of how the politics, both interpersonal politics and broader politics, can influence uh, the writing of history for a very long time. And I think you are in, a pro you are in the process of trying to recover Lucy Stone back into the narrative. So, but, so let's get back and talk about Lucy herself, about her childhood in Massachusetts, and trying to understand what formed her passion. This is a firecracker of a woman, and she was a firecracker child. Uh, so what, let's talk about that early childhood in Massachusetts on the farm and, and how she, certain things of characteristics were evident very early. That's what I found so absolutely fascinating is that she was a farm girl like hundreds of thousands of other young women at the time, born in 1818. Um, she had a good, you know, solid education in common schools, which was in Massachusetts, uh, readily available. Her parents believed in education, but only for their daughters up to a certain point. They actually told Lucy when she was 16 that she needed no more education because she could certainly find a good husband. And yet her father um, paid for, sent two of his sons to um, college. Um, but it was it was not appropriate for a young woman. So for one thing, Lucy very much believed in education. She really felt that in order to lead a purposeful life, she as a woman needed an education. And so on her own, she taught school. She'd teach school for a semester, and then she would pay for a semester at one of the private academies in the area, including Mount Holyoke Female Seminary. She actually attended there for one semester. 
So that purposefulness, that determination uh, was was just almost embedded in her. And I think, um, you know, her pursuit of education was very much a part of that. And then um, she heard about this new college, Oberlin Collegiate Institute, the first college in the nation to admit women and um, (laughs) African-Americans. And she was determined to attend. But, of course, her father would not pay, and she earned her own money and was able to go there. But in addition to that, um, in her childhood, first of all, her parents were um, abolitionists. Her whole family really believed in the abolition movement. They very much talked about slavery. I didn't find any evidence they belonged to an anti-slavery organization, but they subscribed to the Liberator, which was William Lloyd Garrison's uh, very, very liberal, radical abolitionist newspaper. So this was a part of her upbringing. So she had in, she had a very strong sense of justice. Oh. I mean, oh. it was unbelievable, um, her sense of justice and right and wrong, and what was right was right, and there was no wavering. Yeah, and that's also a very strong sense of uh, moralism, you know, what was right and wrong. But uh, she was, in addition to having this this family background in in abolition, she was very unique in her family by really um, getting so upset about um, the status of women. She saw her her mother working tirelessly, nonstop. Um, Her father gave... Her mother no no money on her own. She sometimes stole a little money here and there, sold cheese to make a little money on her own. So within her own family, she realized how basically men had controlled controlled the household, and they controlled their wives, they controlled their property. Um, she readily understood that women could not seek certain professions. They um, could not write their own contracts once they married. The women, you know, she just realized early on that women were very, very oppressed. So the the connection between uh, abolition and freeing of slaves and women's place was not evident to her, to her parents. Uh, they, they didn't make that connection, but she somehow made that connection. She did, and that's what's really interesting, because her mother, you know, basically had to put up with a lot. <laughs> Her, uh, Lucy's father um, often drank too much. He was um, sometimes um, both verbally and physically, we would say, abusive. I mean, major spankings of his children when he was out of control and had too much to drink. Um, and treated, basically basically ran the household. He believed that he was in charge. And her mother went along with that. She was a very, very religious individual, very pious. And for her, the Bible, those were the lessons she learned in the Bible but for Lucy, this was simply unacceptable. And so one wonders, you know, what was in her DNA, what was in her genes. Um, she did have some fairly, um, you know, going back as, as well as I could to find any kind of relatives in her, in her family background who, who did amazing things. And um, again, because Lucy never wrote about herself, there were, I didn't have a lot of examples, but I just felt somehow there was something in her blood, right? I mean, it's it, it seemed that way. Now, oh, she went. She goes to Oberlin uh, College, at which her father refuses to pay. And at the, in this environment, she really uh, she becomes more. I mean, Oberlin at this point is pretty radical because it's you know is advocating uh, abolition of slavery. They have black black students mixing in with white students and. 
this is you know, pretty shocking for that time, but they were still they were lagging behind, of course, in in with women, and she noticed that. Yes, she, right. <laughs> you know, in terms of the the students not being given the same compensation for tasks that they have to perform around the college, that sort of things. So let, let's talk about that time. She became more progressive, more radical than the school itself. How did that come about? What were her intellectual influences? Do do we know what she was reading? We know she was reading intensely. Uh, well, certainly she was, um, you know, she was subscribing to the Liberator as she had been doing uh, ever since she started, you know, attending school on her own. Um, and certainly that must have sort of supported her very radical views on abolition. I mean, I don't know intellectually, uh, you know, with, with all the texts that she read while she was in college. But she had come to school with a very, very strong sense of who women should be and what rights they should have. Um, and so she really stood out for um, her, her sense of who she was and what women could achieve. She wanted to take courses in rhetoric and debating, and, of course, that was forbidden. Um, she, she, um, her best friend was a woman um, named, um, how I can't even remember, <laughs> uh, Blackwell um, Brown, Antoinette Brown, sorry, <laughs> um, who eventually um, they became sisters-in-law. But she, the two of them were sort of a radical on campus in terms of their beliefs in women's rights. Um, and Lucy did. She actually led a protest to um, fight against the inequitable inequitable pay that uh, teachers uh, earned when they were teaching younger students at Oberlin, and she was successful at that. She was regarded as a very um, brilliant, an absolutely brilliant student. She questioned her professors on the role of women and their oppression, and of course the professors basically upheld the Bible and upheld the teachings of, of Oberlin. So Oberlin was a, a wonderful place, but in terms of your right, as you said, for women's rights, um, they were very much a product of their, their time. And the main thing that seems to be, that comes up is, uh, women speaking in public. This is like a real major issue, and this is exactly what she wanted to do, <laughs> was to speak. <laughs> right. <laughs> And, you know, she had been inspired by the Grimke sisters, Angelina and Sarah Grimke, when they were speaking out against slavery in 1837 in New England, and they got soundly condemned by um, congregational ministers for not knowing their place and speaking to both men and women in public. Um, And so that was certainly um, an inspiring, a very inspiring for her. And she vowed when she was in her late teens, that she was going to try to find every way she could to allow women to speak um, to speak in public. Also, Abby Kelly, Abby Kelly Foster, was another inspiration for her. Um, Kelly was one of the major abolitionist speakers and one of the few women who spoke out in public. So both of those, those three women had incredible, um, you know, they were incredibly inspiring to, um, to Lucy, and she was... She was just determined to try to change um, this this veil of silence that women were um, supposed to fall under. So what does she do after she graduates from college? She tells her parents, I'm going to be a speaker. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, the letters, the letters, there were a few letters between Lucy and her parents. And, uh, you know, this was just appalling. And, of course, her mother very much wanted her to... Mary, it was embarrassing enough to have the daughter go off to college, but um, then to have 
to to want to pursue as a profession the idea of being a lecturer was just completely unacceptable. Um, but she went ahead anyway, and she did have the support of, of uh, her brothers, and eventually her younger sister agreed that this is what Lucy needed to do. But their thinking was, again, very traditional for the time. Women should marry, women should bear children, and stay in the home. Now, her, uh, this was all around, this all makes a lot more sense when the resistance has to do with marriage, which Lucy had already decided early on that she really wasn't interested in marriage. Why? She had, she had no interest in marriage. Um, because, again, of all the, the uh, legal limitations on women's lives, this was all part of law, that once a woman married, she was called a femme covert, and she was under the control of her husband, and she could not um, earn her own money when she, any possession she brought to the marriage belonged to her husband. Um, she was basically, you know, totally under, under his control, and that was not a life she envisioned for herself. And both she and Antoinette Brown uh, had some wonderful correspondence um, in which they both expressed the idea that they would absolutely never marry. They wanted a life of independence, a life of purposefulness, and to be able to do what they wanted to do. Right, and, part, and also they could earn their own money. As single women, they were able to retain their own earnings and do what they wanted with those earnings, and that... Uh, would be very attractive. And it seemed, talk about that situation. But in the 19th century, you know, uh, the only way you could really be independent was as, sing- as a single woman. That was the only option. And you could teach. You could teach. And there wasn't a lot else you could do. And of course, I think we tend to forget that um, this was single women were looked upon as very weird. Uh, this is this is not the norm. This is not what women were supposed to do. And so there was an enormous amount of criticism about Lucy um, and her independence and the fact that she had not fallen into the very traditional role um, that, that most women pursued. And today, of course, it's very easy to look back and say, well, you know, why didn't they just, you know, do it anyway? But we have to remember that almost all women married, whether they, you know, that was just what one did. And women fell under the control of their husbands. And so what Lucy did was on her own to make this decision that this was not something she saw in her future. This is not something she wanted. She wanted to be her own person. And she felt that if she married, she absolutely could not be herself. So she had a lot after she graduated from college. I think it was she was 27 or 28. 29. Yeah. 29. She starts his career as a, a speaker. She starts with basically nothing. I mean, n- nobody knows who she is, really, except in Oberlin, but otherwise. Um, and she builds a, quite a career over the next decade as a single woman. Uh, talk about those early uh, years in lecturing. They were tough. They were tough. And, you know, I wish I'd had more information to know what was in the thinking of people in the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society for hiring Lucy. I mean, she was actually a paid lecturer. But when she graduated from Oberlin, it was just ironic that Frederick Douglass was there, uh, William Lloyd Garrison was there, and they had heard about Lucy, and they were impressed by what they had heard. And so 
I don't know that this is true, but somehow word got out that this was quite an exceptional young woman. And the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society was looking for more speakers. And certainly Lucy was encouraged by Abby Kelly Foster to, to pursue this. And so she was hired. But as you said, she had, she was an unknown. Nobody knew about her. Um, and yet, you know, once she started speaking, she was initially always on the stage with two or three other men who were also speaking. But apparently, once she gained her confidence, and that did not take long, she was an absolutely mesmerizing speaker. I mean, journalists who covered her speeches, who, who attended um, the write-ups on her were, even if they didn't agree with her message, um, they couldn't help but be absolutely taken with this woman. Her voice, her message, the way she used stories um, just was absolutely compelling. So what was life like for her at, during that decade um, for our audience, if you'll describe it, because, you know, just the travel and the audiences and what was that like? Well, the first word I would use is exhausting because often she would speak in five or six different towns uh, in a week and go from place to place. And they would travel by horse. They would travel by carriage, um, sometimes by train. The weather conditions could be absolutely awful. Um, they would then be housed in perhaps a boarding house or in someone's house or in a little hotel or somewhere. You know, conditions were really, really primitive. It's not today like you can check into a Radisson hotel. Um, it was very, very different. Um, but this was part of what they did. And, of course, the reception um, to both Lucy, but also to many of these anti-slavery speakers, was negative. I think we often imagine that everyone in the North was opposed to slavery. Uh, it was only those Southerners who, who embraced slavery, and that is simply not true. Even the message of anti-slavery <coughs> excuse me, was very threatening to a lot of people. They had no use for abolitionists. And then added to that when Lucy made the decision also to speak about women's rights. Um, this was even more threatening. The idea that women, a woman, should actually challenge the traditional role of women, demanding their rights, demanding <clears throat> their um, uh, equality in marriage was really, really threatening. And so Lucy's life was, was um, not only challenging, but it was this profession was a very dangerous one. Uh, men threw, um, there was an instance when a man threw a hymnal at her and hit her on the neck. There were there was um, rotten fruit and vegetables thrown at her. In one case, she was standing on a stage, and there was a window behind her, and men found a hose, and they sprayed her with ice-cold water from behind. She just pulled on her shawl and kept on speaking. There were hecklers in the audience. There were mobs who came to protest. It was a very, very difficult um, profession. Yeah, and, she, and this is a woman. Is she usually traveling alone, or is she traveling with a group? Well, initially, she she typically spoke with, as I said, two or three other men. Um, but she, within a year or two, she had made a name for herself. She became famous. And so she began to travel on her own and actually speak on her own. She did this major, major tour in the Midwest in the 1850s um, and was all on her own. And so she preferred that. She actually preferred to speak on her own. And she could attract hundreds of people to her talks. It was 
it was like everybody wanted to hear Lucy Stone. So she was quite a ta- she was very talented, a very talented speaker. Extremely. I mean, that's and- what you're painting. You're this portrait of this uh, extremely eloquent person. Well, and I think we have to remember that there were no microphones in those days. There were no amplification systems. She is speaking just using her voice, and there might be, you know, six or eight hundred people in the room, and some of them very disruptive and noisy. And the the overwhelming response, at least in the newspapers I saw, was that when Lucy started speaking, people became quiet. There was something about her voice. They they talked about it as being almost magical, a magical voice. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the way she used stories, stories about slaves and slave women, um, that was very, very compelling. I so wished I could know what she sounded like. Uh, A recording. You know, she, they compared her, say, to Susan B. Anthony, and they would talk about how Susan B. Anthony ranted and, you know, had an unappealing voice. But Lucy was apparently exactly the opposite. So in a way, she, it sounded to me like she was, there was a charm about her. Uh, in her presentation, she was talking very, she was, her message was very radical. She was very self-confident, but there was a charm about her. Uh, it's almost like she was able to deploy what we consider, you know, feminine charm in a, a really radical way. Yes, and except for her, uh, her, her effort to wear bloomers for, <laughs> you know, a year or two. Um, she dressed very, she was very demure. She was very, very, she was a very small woman, um, very feminine looking, although she had short hair, which was not typical. But just the way she dressed was very simple. She didn't attract attention to herself. And so there was something just physically very, very appealing about Lucy in addition to the way she spoke. Now she's, uh, she's making, she, she quickly becomes, makes really pretty good money doing this. Oh, she made, yes. I mean, initially, uh, the uh, abolitionists did not charge when they would go and speak, um, you know, in various halls and all of that. They spoke for free because they wanted to attract people and not, you know, have them be turned away because they couldn't pay. But it was actually a group of singers, the Hutchinson singers, who performed the same night Lucy did in a hall. And they said, you know, you should charge. And so Lucy and others began to charge. And, of course, people were very willing. This was entertainment at the time. There were no, you know, no TV, no movies, no, no videos. This was entertainment. And so people would pay to hear. And so sometimes they would pass the hat. Sometimes they would sell tickets in advance. But they began to collect money. And I think by 18, the mid-1850s, Lucy had saved something like $6,000, which now I can't remember what that translated into. It's a lot of money. <laughs> it was a lot of money for the time, yes. And so she was making lots of money. She was not in it for the money, but she indeed was earning a very substantial income. So here's this uh, woman in her 30s. She's going all over the country. She's become, she's famous. She's earning good money. She's independent. Her parents, by this point, are probably going, well... Okay, I guess maybe we were wrong. <laughs> they they did begin to accept who their daughter was. Yes, um, and steps in Henry Blackwell out of nowhere. <laughs> so talk about Henry Blackwell and her relationship with him. P- probably from what you describe, he was probably the only man in the entire country that could have persuaded her like he did. 
And that's what it took. I mean, I found when I read this correspondence from Henry to Lucy, um, it's all on microfilm. And, and well, first of all, Henry was a, uh, shall we say, restless, indecisive individual. He was very much a man who wanted everyone to like him. You know, he wanted to be a people pleaser. And he had not found any occupation that really um, drew him in. At one point, he was going to rush off to California and mine for gold. Uh, he tried sugar beet production. He uh, and his brother, Sam, bought, a, a, bought into a partnership in a hardware store in Cincinnati. But he was looking for a woman <laughs> to marry. And he, um, the, the first major encounter was that Henry, Henry was an abolitionist. His family was very, very committed to abolition. And he was at an abolitionist meeting in Massachusetts, and he heard Lucy speak. He also heard her testify before the state legislature, and he decided this was the woman for him. Seven years older than he was, um, you know, extremely well-educated. Henry was very well-read, but Lucy was no doubt better educated than he. And he started pursuing her. And he did it primarily through correspondence because she was always on the go. He could hardly keep up with her. Um, he gave, he organized an entire um, lecture tour for her in the Midwest. I think he figured out this was a good way to please her. And he wrote her these pages long letters. Um, they're often written crosshatch, you know, where you write across horizontally on the paper and then you turn it and you write vertically. But I mean, pages and pages. Very eloquent, absolutely beautiful, where he discussed books he had read, where he talked about women's rights. He tried to convince Lucy that he was the man who would give her a a marriage of equals, that he would truly allow her to be an independent individual. And this is this is the this is the part of the story that's just pretty amazing because the way you describe him, he seems a little sort of disheveled. Uh, not really put together. Does it's not real focused, and you know she's so hyper focused. They're, they're very different, and and it's almost like a mismatch. I understand they both had a moral commitment that they shared, but he seemed not to be really his, her equal in any sense of the way. I mean, well, well they always say opposites attract, <laughs> and. <laughs> But they did. They did share this commitment to abolition and to women's rights. Um, Henry's oldest sister, Elizabeth Blackwell, was the first uh, female doctor in this country and then followed by her younger sister, Emily. So the two of them were the first, you know, female educated female doctors in this country. Um, One of his sisters was a uh, writer who went back to England. Another sister was very involved in women's rights in England. It was a very interesting family because the women were very successful and they all had passions and they pursued them. And the letters written by the sisters about Henry and then about Lucy, they were very dismissive of Lucy. They could not understand why their brother would pursue this farm girl. Because um, they were kind of, they were elitist. I mean, there was a whole elitism to the Blackwells. Yes, British family um, who had been very, they lived very comfortably in England and then moved to this country. And um, unfortunately, the, the father died. He died from malaria. And the family really went into a decline economically. But 
they had this sense of who they were and how special they were and how intellectual they were. And it was very, very evident, particularly, as I say, among the sisters who could not understand that. I mean, there was actually one letter when it was either Emily or Elizabeth said they could not understand why the women were so successful in the family and the men were totally, you know, <laughs> I don't know, unfocused or what. So Elizabeth Blackwell, particularly when you're talking about them, they, they were, uh, they did advocate for women's rights, but they didn't think the way Lucy was doing it was the way to go about it. They thought it was rather crass. Totally. Right. Speaking before uh, audiences, being out there in public, you did it by proving yourself, as she had done, you know, by somehow getting admitted to medical school and proving herself as a doctor. This is the way you did it. She had been aided, she said, throughout her career by men. She could not understand why Lucy was, was so critical of men and then, of course, making herself so public. Which seems, you know, like a... A conflict that we still have, that there's still, that's, that's that conflict between liberal feminist and radical feminist, uh, you know, it's still there. It's still there, right. It's, it's this, Does this, one prove oneself by how you live and what you do and what you accomplish. Lean in. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, versus, versus Lucy Stone's way of, of, of doing things. And, uh, that's a deep division that's been there for a long time. Now, Henry Blackwell manages after how long to pursue? It took two years. Okay. Years. And, and Lucy was under a great deal of stress. I mean, first of all, she's pursuing this career and speaking in public and wearing herself out. Um, but, um, and then to try to deal with both within her, she really had a desire for a family. She had loved her family and that had been very much a part of her. Um, so she was she was torn, and then there's this pressure from Henry about about their marrying, and um, her health really went into a decline uh, during the last several months of their of their in a sense courtship, or I should say Henry's courtship of her. Um, so it was a stressful time for her, but you know eventually eventually she gave in, and she did realize that Henry would be true to his word, that he really would allow her to operate as an independent woman. So what are some of the terms of their marriage that was not accepted by custom? Or they, they, they basically rewrote marriage for themselves. Oh, they did. They, in fact, and it was Henry who had the idea of writing a protest, a public protest against marriage. And, they, and he wrote this and then she edited it. And the day after they married, they had this protest published in various newspapers, which was not protesting so much marriage, but marriage in terms of how it felt yeah. legally. The terms of the terms, the current terms of how it was defined and how what happened to women in marriage. Exactly, that they became totally oppressed and they very much protested against that. And I and do. So there was the newspapers had a field day with that. It's like, well, how could they? How could Lucy possibly marry? How could they either of them marry if they protested marriage? But feminists of the time, or I should say, uh, women's rights reformers, um, certainly saw this as a great a great step. And then a year later, Lucy did the really unthinkable, and that was to keep her maiden name which aroused much less controversy because, first of all, it wasn't so public. But she actually got the support and approval of several lawyers to ask if there was any law against her keeping her maiden name. 
and there's there was no law against it. And so from that point forward, she was always Lucy Stone. So even though Henry throughout the book is just, you know, doing business venture after business venture and having lots of failure and, and, and using some of her, uh, investing some of her money, uh, in some of this land out west and he's, <laughs> out Wisconsin. he's doing all these schemes. Um, he was actually, he was just amazing in terms of how much freedom he was willing to allow. Uh, yes, I, I think it's, it's, I just find the marriage absolutely fascinating. And I mean, I think they, they needed each other. And I think we have to realize that Henry needed Lucy's sense of confidence, of self, of her commitment to beliefs. Um, no, Henry was, somebody actually suggested perhaps he was bipolar. <laughs> uh, I mean, who would know at the time? I mean, no, no, there was no medical diagnosis of that at the time. But he did have a very, what they called a flighty nature. I think one of his sisters called it a butterfly nature, that he kind of flitted from thing to thing and was never able to really find the profession that fit him. Ultimately, he became very involved in the women's rights movement. And that gave his life meaning. But, yes, he invested in all this land that seemed to not sell, and they really faced a few years of real impoverishment when they were first married because it was Lucy who was earning all the money. Right, and that is just very unusual for that time, that the woman is way more successful than he is, making more money than he is. And they and the man and the marriage seemed to, uh, for the most part, to be strong. Yes, for the most part. And again, you know, it's always true when you're writing history that all you can rely on are letters, and letters are only written when people are apart. And often, when people are apart, they're very affectionate and they miss one another, and so they're lovely to read. You don't know what's going on <laughs> behind the scenes when people are together. Um, and there were there was certainly a downturn in their marriage um, in 1869, but again, some of the letters got burned in a fire. Some of the letters their daughter Alice destroyed that looked upon the you know that showed some negative things about their relationship and about the family. So we can only use what we have, and then it's not good to just over speculate on what we think probably happened. And then she did she did have a daughter Alice Blackwell yes. that we yes. know. And uh, that was a, another twist to her her life. You know, she's speaking, and once once a child enters into the picture, what happens? Well, I mean, it's like what we all face. Those of us who have married and had children, and you know, and you want a career or you have a job or whatever, and suddenly you're torn in way too many directions. She really had sort of, I think, imagined that she could find good household help, that she could continue her career. Certainly, they needed the money. But Alice was a fairly sickly child, although from my research, I found lots of children were very sickly at the time. And so Alice was, a, you know, demanding. And Lucy did not find that perfect nurse to take care of Alice. And um, she also, in 1859, had a uh, she bore a son prematurely. He was only he was seven months old when he was born and did not live. And I think at that point she really decided she needed to be a mother and devote herself to Alice. And so she basically gave up her public life 
in order to nurse and take care of Alice. Okay. So she was a very attentive, attentive mother for several years. Now, th- during this time, though, she she's writing letters. She's she's telling, oh, she's staying she's staying involved in the movements um, indirectly. She's not speaking as much, but she is uh, connecting with yes. people. She wasn't, yes, she was not as involved in the leadership of the movement. Certainly up until 1856, she was really regarded as one of the most important um, organizers of the various women's rights conventions um, in terms of lining up speakers and setting up an agenda and finding a place and raising money and all that. Lucy really was, was one of the major movers in the women's rights movement. But after Alice was born, she stepped back from that. She could not maintain that kind of commitment. Okay, let's talk about the politics in this in this book. Uh, particularly, I think the the relationship she had with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but more specifically with Susan B. Anthony before the Civil War. Then the Civil War happens, and after the Civil War, this uh, Anthony relationship begins to really deteriorate for a lot of reasons. But let's talk about that. What what was that relationship? How did she meet Anthony? And how did they get along before the Civil War? I never found out exactly when Lucy actually met Susan B. Anthony. I think it was in Seneca Falls when Lucy was there and Anthony was there. Uh, But um, Anthony had already heard about Lucy Stone, again, because she was so famous and she was very attracted to the kinds of speeches Lucy was giving on women's rights. Susan B. Anthony was already involved in temperance and she was involved in abolition. And suddenly there's this new movement, women's rights. And she, of course, became very, very close to um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. The two of them really created a partnership. But uh, Anthony and, and Lucy were very, very close uh, during, the 18, during the 1850s because at least until Lucy married, they were both single women. They were both out there uh, speaking in public. They were both facing the same kinds of pressures and and difficulties, and they wrote these very, very affectionate letters to one another, particularly Anthony to um, Lucy, um, you know, with very, very tender feelings and a tremendous amount of empathy um, toward each other because they were both facing the same kinds of challenges. So that was a very close friendship. I never felt that Aunt, uh, Lucy and um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton had anywhere close to a very personal and close relationship. Lucy very much admired Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I mean, she, too, was a brilliant woman who wrote some amazing, absolutely amazing essays and letters on women's rights. But we have to remember, even though Elizabeth Cady Stanton gets so much credit for the women's rights movement, really until 1860, she did not attend any national women's rights conventions. She was a part of them, and just in terms of what she wrote, essays she she sent to these conventions. But she was at home raising her seven kids, bearing and raising her seven children. And there, I think, was a class issue, too, because Elizabeth Cady Stanton came from a very privileged New York family. Her father was a judge. And Lucy's the farm girl who had to work throughout her life. And um, so I think, you know, there was a class issue that um, created any kind of sort of strong, strong friendship. But in any case, um, after the Civil War, as I said, in in 1869, things began to disintegrate. Part of that was um, the effort that Lucy and Henry made in Kansas. Kansas was rewriting its constitution. 
And one of the major issues, well, two of the major issues were um, giving African-American men the right to vote and women the right to vote. And Henry and Lucy went to Kansas, and they were there for several weeks lecturing. After they left, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton came, and this was at the same time that the 14th and 15th Amendments were being considered. Tremendous amount of racism that came out of certainly Elizabeth Cady Stanton's mouth, um, and, of course, Susan B. Anthony was right there. And so this offended many people back in the East Coast that these two women would now, you know, use racism and use that issue uh, in order to try to promote women. They really felt that women should gain the right to vote first before the newly freed slaves. And this created a real division just intellectually in terms of how Lucy felt about the issue and how Stanton and Anthony felt. And it got quite nasty, um, the relationship over the next decades or so. And so you've got... um, Lucy Stone, uh, uh, as a founder of the American Women's Suffrage Association, as a, as a her own organization, and also the Women's Journal, which would think, uh, are those all, is that stuff available at the archives? Do we have the archives of that? What, of the Women's Journal? Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Uh, it's on, you can get it on okay. my, yeah. Okay, okay. That would be very interesting to read. Oh, it's fascinating to read. Yes, that was that was Lucy's paper, and that was one thing she decided in 1869 not only to form her own organization, but in part because of this division, she wanted to, they were living in New Jersey at the time, and of course the National Women's Suffrage Association was in New York, and she had made several friends in um, the Boston area, including Julia Ward Howe and William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell Phillips. And so she decided the family should move to the Boston area. And there had been some trauma in their marriage. And um, Lucy determined, she decided that starting a newspaper and um, running a newspaper would be, you know, lead to a quieter life, that she wouldn't have to be on the lecture circuit so much. She could be at home more, and yet she could have a voice by starting this newspaper. So she, with the aid of Henry and with Julia Ward Howe, raised $10,000 to start the Woman's Journal. First issue came out January 1870. And its effort was basically to deal with any issues that dealt with women, not only in the fight for suffrage, but in the right for any, any other issue that dealt with women's rights, to promote women who had made a difference, to write biographies of famous people who had promoted women's rights, um, it's just a it's a fascinating newspaper to read. Came out every Saturday without fail from 1870 until 1920. It changed names at one point at the very end. But did uh, did Lucy write for that? Did she write a lot or not? Or she was she an editor? She did not write a lot. Um, the first two years, she was not um, the editor. But then the editor Mary Livermore, Livermore left to become a lecturer. She had been the first editor. Then Lucy became principal editor, aided by Henry, later on Alice, um, and Thomas Higginson. But Lucy wrote some editorials, but for the most part, she hired a lot of writers, and many, many famous writers, also unknown writers um, and supporters. So she wrote some, Henry wrote some, Thomas Higginson was a regular writer, 
Louisa May Alcott. I mean, there are just there are some really famous people who wrote for that um, that newspaper. So that paper could also be a source of uh, information, or uh, that's different from what Stanton and Anthony did in their women's history. Yes, actually, they did start a newspaper. Uh, they started a newspaper called The Revolution. Um, this was when they were at their most radical and when they were making, unfortunately, all these racist statements. But they were they were funded by a man named George Train, who helped them start this newspaper. Um, the revolution did not last very long. It had very limited readership. It also reflected its name. It was very radical. Um, <laughs> And it was very much a voice of the National Women's Suffrage Association. But it, as I say, it did not last long. And Train, the, the relationship with this man Train and also with uh, uh, Woodhall. Victoria Woodhall. Yeah. <laughs> was a point of contention with, with between Anthony Stanton and Lucy Stone, who thought these two people were just awful. Why? Well, yeah, this is where her moralism really, you know, you really, really see it. George Train was uh, an extravagant, uh, over-the-top, racist dandy, as uh, William Lloyd Garrison called him. And uh, he was not afraid to make the most extreme statements. He very much promoted Stanton and Anthony when they were in Kansas. Um, but for, uh, you know, people like William Lloyd Garrison and Lucy Stone, um Train was just someone who was totally unacceptable to have any association with the women's rights movement. They were appalled. Um, but in any case, Anthony and Stanton uh, befriended him and let him uh, sort of pay their bills for, for several several months. Victoria Woodhull was a whole other thing. Um, she, she grew up in a very disreputable Midwestern family. Um, her father was very unsuccessful. She, uh, Victoria married at a very young age, had two children, divorced her husband, first husband, married a second husband. She and her sister, Tennessee, or Tenny, as she was known, um, became, um, should we say, close companions of Cornelius Vanderbilt when they moved to New York City. There's evidence that Tenny actually was one of his mistresses. But in any case, Vanderbilt supported these two women, and they started one of the, well, it was the first um, newspaper that dealt with Wall Street information. Um, he set them up as brokers and, of course, supplied them with all the information about the best stocks people should buy. So you have these two really, really, well, disreputable is the best word I can say, um, women who you know were leading this this scandalous life certainly in terms of Lucy, but Victoria got herself involved in the women's movement and she appeared at a convention for the National Women's Suffrage Association and spoke out on women's suffrage, and spoke out on women's rights in very radical ways. And Stanton and Anthony absolutely embraced her. For most women, even women in their own organization, were appalled because suddenly this woman. Victoria Woodhall became sort of a poster child, and, and she and she was also not also an advocate of free love, totally. And right. this was not for most women. We're, this is not a good way for us to advance our cause. We're, this is going to hurt us, right? Right. And certainly, Lucy felt that. Yes, but for Stanton, Stanton was um, sort of a shall I say a semi proponent of free love. I mean, she had she very much she believed in divorce. Um, she had some more radical opinions. I, this may be in part to the fact that her own marriage was 
not a very happy one, but um, she had many more radical ideas, certainly, than, than Lucy Stone. But Victoria Woodhull was the first, shall we say, the first woman who wanted to run for president. She put herself up for a candidate. She wasn't legally old enough to run. She named Frederick Douglass as her vice president, had never asked him. Um, so many people would say Victoria Woodhull was the first woman to run for president. Not really, but publicly she put herself out there. She created the People's Party, her own political party. Anyway, it was quite something. But Lucy was absolutely scandalized by what was going on, and it became another major, major uh, divisive factor in the, these two organizations. Um, she just found this totally unacceptable. Now, I'm going to turn to the historiography on this. There's several books, recent books, that have really are turning away from Anthony and Stanton. They're trying to correct the dominance of Anthony and Stanton in women's suffrage. And two new books, one by Lucretia Mott, uh, by Carol Faulkner on Lucretia Mott, and the other one is The Myth of Seneca Falls by Lisa Tetrault. Uh, these books are trying to think about this, these women and what happened a little different. Where do you see Lucy Stone falling into this historiography that's offering some correctives of uh, Stanton and, oh, and I Anthony? Feel, yeah, I feel she's right there. Um, I actually had the privilege of reading Tetro's book before it came out, and I was like, oh, this is great. You know, this is wonderful that somebody is really, um, you know, challenging the role that these, these women played and how we've been portraying our, our history and the way that these two women used Seneca Falls as sort of the most important event in our nation's history. On the other hand, I just written a book on Seneca Falls where I very much, uh, you know, promoted it as a as a, a seminal moment in in history. And I still feel it is. I, I don't doubt that. But I feel that if we really want to do justice to the women's rights movement, we need to look at the all that was happening in this mid nineteenth century period and look at other women and other people who played a major role. And we, we can't forget about the men who played an important role in the, in the women's movement as well. So I hope that, um, I hope and wish that people would begin to see Lucy Stone as every bit as important um, as Anthony and Stem. Oh, uh, in um, the, the Myth of Seneca Falls by Tetral, she uh, makes, uh, Anthony does not come off very well at all. She looks rather mean-spirited. And in your book, mm-hmm. uh, Anthony does not does not come off at all as a, as a kind of person you would have over for dinner and really enjoy our company. But I wanted to know, but we know, but there's not been a really thorough biography of, of Anthony. Is there? Right. She, she um, right. She, she, hi- in a sense, sort of hired a woman to write her, write her biography, which became three volumes and she had to approve every single word of it. So it's not as if it's a, you know, really unbiased kind of <laughs> good examination of Anthony. And I know my husband asked me, okay, so what's next? Do you want to, you want to write another biography? And I said, I loved writing this biography. I said, but the last person I want to write about is Susan B. Anthony. Does everybody feel that way about Anthony? I think that, I think somebody will write about her, but I, um, I don't like her. I, I can't imagine writing. <laughs> I can't imagine writing a book about someone I don't like um, or admire. I mean, I do admire what she did, but she was very self-important. 
Um, and certainly it shows in Tetro's book about how she manipulated so much of what went on behind the scenes and how she became head of the uh, National American Women's Suffrage Association. And Lucy saw that. You know, Lucy, of course, by then is is in very poor health. Um, <clears throat> she really didn't even have the strength to, um, you know, attend the last, you know, few conventions. But, um, you know, she sensed that uh, Susan B. Anthony was really out for herself and had very much in mind that she wanted to lead the movement and would do so under her own terms. So, no, I don't like Anthony either. <laughs> but everything's aimed at named but, after Anthony. I but mean, then, but that makes it makes her a challenge and of trying to find you know what makes her go and tick and and not just the superficial reading that we might take of her. But anyway, I've just I've just noticed this pattern in these books I'm reading about Anthony. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> so yeah, what I'd is, rather have Susan. I'd rather have a little bit with Katie Stanton to dinner than Susan. Absolutely, me too. She um, would be. Stanton had a good sense of humor, and um, I have not discovered a sense of humor in in uh, Anthony. Right. Nor in Stone, actually. Stone did not have a good sense of humor. She had a good sense of irony, but not uh, not a very strong sense of humor. Well, she, she took herself very seriously, also. She did, and everything she did. So, what is the takeaway for the reader? What would you like the reader to get out of this book? The one thing well, you want them to take away. Um, first of all, I want them to recognize and, you know, acknowledge that Lucy Stone was such an important leader in our past. I mean, she really should be one of the most important people in mid-19th century American history, um, both in terms of the abolition movement and the women's rights movement. She has not been given uh, adequate attention. And that would be my number one goal, would be for um, her to begin to be, you know, front and center with the other other major leaders of the abolition movement and the women's rights movement. Um, I think it's important to recognize we often don't tell our history very accurately. And in this case, Lucy Stone is a very good example of that, about how someone's been left out. And in, by leaving her out, um, we have this void in our understanding our past. Um, the other thing that I think is so important to recognize is just what kind of strength, what kind of commitment and determination it took to be a Lucy Stone at this time in our history. It would be very different today. Not that she wouldn't be criticized for whatever, you know, whatever commitment and, and um, you know, reform movement or whatever she would take on. But in the mid-19th century, what she did as a woman um, and she did on her own. I think it's just so remarkable. And we can't get back to understand what life was like, but I've tried to do my best to really show what she was able to overcome, what she had to deal with on a daily basis. It was a constant struggle, and she suffered migraine headaches. Um, you know, she had major, major problems when she went through menopause. You know, she had sciatica. She had arthritis. She had uh, problems with her lungs and her heart. I mean, she had some major health problems, and she kept going. She so believed in what she was doing. Um, she didn't take vacations with her family. When Henry and Alice went off to Europe, Lucy stayed home to edit the Woman's Journal. They would go to Martha's Vineyard, which at that time was a very low-key, inexpensive uh, place to vacation. They would go off for a few weeks in the summer, and Lucy would stay in Boston to make sure the Woman's Journal got edited. So just an amazing commitment that I don't think many people share today, this kind of determination to try to change the world, the world and make it better. 
Well, thank you, Sally. Thank you so much. This was great fun. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. I welcome your comments and suggestions. You may send me an email at newbooks.gender at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.